Today, we're reading from Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea. They, they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Then we'll pick this up at verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Egyptians, you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought the darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left.
Good morning to everyone. Last week, we, on Easter, we arrived at the most important and foundational event in the history of our faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's lots of important stories and events that we go back to in the Bible, but this is the one that's at the very center. And this week, we come to the most important event in the nation of Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt, the uh, crossing of the Red Sea. And so what we have, the way this has worked out, and I wanted it to work out, is that we had these two foundational stories back to back. We have uh, Resurrection Sunday, and we have Exodus, Easter and Exodus together. These two epic stories, each about salvation. And the benefit of having these two stories back to back is that they, they help us understand each other. The Exodus helps us better understand Easter. And I think it does this in two ways. First, the crossing of the Red Sea gives us a paradigm for how God saves. In other words, it gives us a pattern for how God saves. According to my records, this is the 185th sermon I've preached here at Midway. And, and you don't know exactly what I'm going to preach on today, but you know, five years of hearing me preach, like you have some idea probably what to expect. There's a pattern to my sermons. If I showed up in, in t-shirts and preached for five minutes, that would not fit my pattern. The way that God saves in the Bible, and eventually through the death and resurrection of Jesus, is, is unlike anything that's ever happened before. It's completely surprising, it's shocking, and it's also very consistent with how God acts. Okay? It follows a pattern of how God saves in the Bible. So two weeks ago, for example, we, we looked at the story of the Passover, and we talked about how uh, Jesus in the gospel becomes our Passover lamb. So we have a pattern. How does God save in the Bible? Well, at least in part, God saves through sacrifice and through blood. In the story of the Exodus, there is power in the blood of a sacrificed lamb to save. In the New Testament, we learn that there's power in the blood shed from Jesus to save. So we have a pattern. And now this crossing of the Red Sea is going to help fill out this picture of salvation, of how God saves. Because it's, it's, it's sacrifice and blood, but it's more than that. It's about the defeat of an enemy and the rescue from bondage. The first thing the Exodus does is it helps us understand Easter by giving us a pattern for how God saves. But secondly, the the story of the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, helps us understand Easter because it gives us a really concrete story about how God saves. So we, we make this profession as Christians that it is through the life and death and resurrection that a way of salvation has been opened up to us. That through that death and resurrection, Satan has been defeated We've been delivered from the bondage of sin. We've, we've been adopted into a new family, the, the family of God. And now we're setting off on this journey towards the promised land. But that's all really abstract, isn't it? Like when I became a, a follower of Jesus, I was not literally in slavery. Someone didn't come along and like take out an oppressive slave master and then take the shackles off my feet and then lead me on this daring escape. And yet that's the language we use, right? Rescue, redemption slavery. It's all this very abstract language that relies on metaphors. But the story, what's helpful about the story of the Exodus is it's not abstract. Okay, we have, an act, we have an enemy who's defeated. We have a people who are freed from slavery. We have a, a literal way made through the sea. And so I think what's helpful is this gives us something to grab onto and all this abstract stuff, it gives us a concrete story to grab onto to understand how salvation works in the New Testament. 
two weeks ago when we left off, our, we had, the story had paused for a little bit while we, we looked at this Passover, this ritual, this supper that would, the Israelites would do for generations to come. Now the Israelites are on the move again. Okay, the final plague has struck, the final blow has struck, the death of the firstborn, and now, after all this time, Pharaoh has finally agreed to let the Israelites go. So they set off, and they're led by, we read this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and that's what guides them. Rather than take them immediately out, uh, uh, what God does is he kind of, it's kind of a circular movement, he leads them back actually towards, towards Egypt, and so they circle around and and when our story picks up, the Israelites find themselves encamped uh, in this kind of in-between place. Okay? They're out of Egypt. Pharaoh is no longer their master. But they're not yet to Mount Sinai. Okay? They haven't reached Mount Sinai where the covenant of God, this agreement with God is made. And Pharaoh, probably not surprisingly at this point, we've gotten to know Pharaoh. He changes his mind. He decides to go after the Israelites. Okay? So he gets, uh, we read, 600 of his best chariots. So, you know, I think the most advanced military technology of the day. Uh, he amasses his army, and he heads out to bring the Israelites back into the service of Egypt. Okay, this is what verse 10 says. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. So try to get, try to get your mind around this situation that the Israelites find themselves in. Talk about between a rock and a hard place. On one side of the Israelites, we've got a sea. Okay? I'm thinking they, they did not get swim lessons when they were slaves in Egypt. And then on the other side, we've got this massive army barreling towards them. We've got horses, we've got chariots, we've got troops. It, it's no wonder they're terrified. They are, they're trapped. The Israelites are hemmed in on either side. Okay? There's a powerful enemy on one side. There's a sea on the other side. Barring a miraculous extraction, the Israelites are done. Okay? They are toast. There's no way that the Israelites are going to get out of this situation on their own. Okay, they're either going to go back to slavery in Egypt or they're, they're dead in the water. I think this image, again, we're trying, to, we're trying to get some concrete images to understand salvation in the New Testament. I think this image is really helpful because uh, we talk about rescue, but it's very abstract. Right? We talk about, we use language that God came and saved me. What does that mean, God saved me? Okay. Well, if we, if we look back at the Exodus, it means that we were in a desperate situation, okay? We were in a desperate situation where we were powerless and, to save ourselves. So we, we, uh, we professed that we were completely hemmed in. We were trapped. And at barring a miraculous intervention, a miraculous extraction from that situation, we're not going to make it, okay? That's what rescue is. That's what salvation is. And that's seen very clearly here in the Exodus. So salvation is not... Um, is not God coming to us and giving us a helping hand. It's not God coming to, to give us a, boost us up with a little advice to try to get us out of a tricky situation. Salvation is not a, a team effort. We tag team, we work with God to, to get ourselves, to extract ourselves out of a situation. Salvation is also not something we earn on our own merits. Because look at the order here. God saves the people from slavery in Egypt, and then he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. So God doesn't, uh, he doesn't give the Israelites the law in Egypt and say, I'm going to give you this law, I'm going to watch you for a while, I'm going to see how you do. If you pass the test, then I'm going to get you out of Egypt. No, that's not what happens. They are saved, and then they are given the law. In other words, the exodus is an act of grace. Okay, so salvation is, is coming to us when we are completely hemmed in, 
We have no way out, and we're being extracted from a deadly and desperate situation, which, if we're left to our own devices, we're done. We're toast. Okay, keep going. Verse 11. The Israelites say to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to to this desert to die? I love the sarcasm here. Like, this is a really serious moment in the story. The Israelites are about to die, but they still have, like, a dark, sarcastic sense of humor. Right? They can, and, then like they, and they throw a jab at Moses. Like, right, we're about to die, but we're going to be funny here. So they can, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? I don't, I don't remember them saying that, but okay. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Okay, the Israelites, you know, picture this in your mind. The Israelites, they look. Here's the old slave masters coming. And, and they think to themselves, oh, bondage to Pharaoh slavery Egypt. Those were the good old days. And we, we see this even more clearly. They get over the other side of the sea, and they're, they're beginning their journey, and, and they have this, they get frustrated, and they have this memory of, of sitting around all these pots of meat in Egypt. And they, it was like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You just, whatever you wanted back in Egypt, you just ate. Like, memory can be a funny thing, can it? I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you and someone else have a very different memory of how something happened. And it's easy just to shake your head at the Israelites, but the reality is, and this is, this is pretty well documented, people who have endured long periods of incarceration or oppression, when they experience sudden liberation, they can find themselves frightened and disoriented. The, some of you, probably, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, The Shawshank Redemption is a movie about a, a guy named Andy, and he's sentenced to... Uh, life in the Shawshank State Penitentiary. And in the film, it follows him and eventually his escape. But uh, one of the inmates in that penitentiary is a guy named Brooksy. And Brooksy is, uh, he's the librarian for the prison, and he's been there for, for 50 years. So you know, basically, he's an elderly guy at this point. Prison is all Brooksy knows. Uh, and and he in- eventually ends up being granted parole. And so he's free to leave pre- prison. And the shot that you see in the Shawshank Redemption is of a Brooksy stepping out of the prison, and he gets on a bus, and he gets out, and, and it's clear that he's astounded at how much the world has changed since he was last free in these 50 years in prison. So he gets out. He tries to adjust to life in prison. He gets a job, but it's a struggle. Everyone's in a hurry. He finds himself in constant fear. And Brooksy writes a letter back to his friends in the prison, and he expresses how difficult it is to adjust to the outside world. So he ends up so much so that he actually tries to break his parole so he can get sent back to prison. Brooksy actually finds himself longing to go back to prison. The Israelites, at their moment of slavery, they're, they're disoriented and they're fearful, and they find themselves longing to go back to prison, back to slavery, back to Egypt. Now, what would make a person do that? What would make a person long to go back to their slave master? Actually, long for bondage over freedom. In the story of the Israelites at Exodus and the story of Brooksy, we have these people who want to return to bondage, who actually ask to return to their master. And I think, I think something similar happens to us. I think it just, I think it flies under the radar. I think we don't recognize it. Let me give you, let me give you an example. I gave up coffee for Lent. I don't think you're supposed to talk about what you gave up for Lent, but I've been talking about it to everyone, so I'm not setting a good example. But I gave up coffee for Lent. And the first week I gave up coffee, um, man, I could barely function. 
I had a headache. Am I exaggerating a little bit? Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I felt like I could barely function. I couldn't concentrate. I was lethargic. I was struggling. Uh, and, and I saw I had some sense that I was addicted to, to, to coffee, but not to that extent. See, all these years, my understanding of how things worked in the morning was that I woke up and I thought about the first thing that came to my mind, I want to go make a cup of coffee. So I, I go downstairs, and I grind the beans, and I make a cup or six cups of coffee. And I, and, I, and I was free. Every morning I was free to decide if I had coffee or not. That's what I thought. And what I realized was that it was the other way around. Okay? Coffee was in control of me. Coffee was dictating my morning. And, I, and once I told coffee that, like, we're not going to do this for a while, we're going to take a break from each other, the coffee punished me. And the first week, I was so ready to run back to the bondage of coffee. There are all kinds of forces at work in our lives that are controlling us, that are, that are calling the shots in our life, and that are completely, we're completely unaware of because it's flying under the radar. We think we're in control, but that's not the case. With substances like drugs, it becomes pretty clear what is controlling you. But there's other powers that, are, that enslave us, that, that control us, that are much harder to see. Um, let me give you an example. I think Attention is a big one I think about in our days. Um, I read a story this week about a guy who, who's he's a well-known YouTuber uh, who filmed a dramatic scene out in California where he was flying this single-engine plane, and all of a sudden you see in this video that the propeller stops. Okay, He's in the plane, propeller stops, and he's filming all this, and you see him... Uh, there's a few expl- uh, expletives that come out, and then he, he jumps out of the plane and parachutes out as the plane crashes down into the mountains. Well, it turns out, according to the FAA, that the guy crashed the plane intentionally. Right? He did this all as a stunt to record footage for it, and then he posted it on YouTube and I think got like 1.2 million views. And I was thinking about that this week because I was thinking, man, attention is powerful. Attention can, can drive someone to jump out of an airplane and crash it just to get likes, just to get attention. That's extreme, of course. I don't think any of us are tempted to do that. But the reality is we live in a culture where attention is the most prized commodity. For a lot of people, there is nothing they want more than attention. And, and if we will do, we will do almost nothing to stop to get that, even crashing a plane. Attention is a powerful taskmaster. It controls us. Uh, it, and you see this all the time on, on social media. It gets us to do things and say things that if we just stepped back for a minute, we would say, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Something is, something is controlling me. Let's get, let me give another example. It is easy to become enslaved to our bank account. So I think many of us were told, since we're very young, like, you, you want freedom, save up your money. Amass your fortunes. And once you save up enough money, you'll be free. You won't have to worry. You can do what you want. And so I think that my bank account, my growing bank account, is, is, is helping me to become free, when in fact, I'm in bondage to it. It's controlling me. I, I'm obsessively checking its balance. I'm constantly worried there's not enough in there. There are all these taskmasters that are exerting power over us, that are calling the shots in our life, that are controlling us, and they're flying under the radar. 
God is taking the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's going to make a nation of them. Okay? He's going to make a people of them. God has purposes for these people. And in order for God to work out these purposes through his people, he's going to have to, he's going to, have to free them of the taskmasters. He's going to have to drown out the old taskmasters. It's not, and, you know, think about it. It's not going to work. If they get over there and, and Pharaoh's calling some shots and God is calling some shots, that's not going to work. It doesn't work to serve two masters, which sounds familiar, right? It sounds like a, something Jesus said in a really famous sermon of his. When Jesus finds you and he finds me and he, we're trapped and there's no way out, he and he alone saves us. But Jesus is not just about rescuing your soul. Jesus wants to rescue you from what is controlling you. Because you, he wants to rescue you from what is putting you in bondage now. When you cross over into Jesus' kingdom, you don't take the taskmasters with you. Jesus doesn't allow it. Why? Because those taskmasters have different priorities, they have different values than Jesus does. And our soul, what we profess as far as Jesus, our soul allegiance is to Jesus. If we don't give ourselves fully over to Jesus, something else is going to be calling the shots. And I think what, what amazes me about Jesus, he's, he's so brilliant, is that in the Gospels, he, seems to, he has this x-ray vision. When he looks at someone, he seems to know exactly what's controlling them. He's so good at it. Uh, as disciples, we need Jesus looking at us and we need to ask Jesus, show us these taskmasters in my life that are controlling me, that are calling shots that I don't even realize, that I don't even recognize. What is enslaving me? What is competing with you? Set me free from that. So the, here's the first thing I want you to see. We are much more attached to our slave masters than we probably think or would like to admit. But secondly, okay, we're thinking about why, why would the Israelites, as they look back to Egypt, why would they want to go back to slavery rather than head to freedom? And I think the second reason is because freedom is scary. It involves risk. Okay, think about this. How is there risk? Moses is going to stretch out his hand. God's going to drive back the sea. Okay, we're going to have these two walls of water. Uh, there's going to be one on the right, one on the left. And, and what do you think it was like crossing over that sea uh, with those two walls, one to your right and one to your left? How do you think you would have crossed over? I'm guessing some of us would have crossed over like this. Some of us would have crossed over like this. I think almost all of us would have crossed over saying, is it going to hold? 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 I'm sure some of the Israelites got to the other side and realized they hadn't breathed the entire time they were walking through the Red Sea. I don't know about you, I don't have a lot of experience crossing through divided walls of water, and neither did the Israelites. God had opened up a way for the Israelites to cross the sea. That way of salvation was completely God's doing, but it involved risk for them. It involved risk because they were going into uncharted territory. Like, it's not just a dry seabed that's strange. It's, they don't know what's on the other side of that sea. They've been in Egypt for generations and generations. This is completely uncharted territory. The Israelites have no idea what's on the other side of that sea. They know one thing. They know slavery in Egypt. It's a miserable life. But guess what? It's predictably miserable. If the Israelites are captured, if they return to life under Pharaoh, it's miserable, but it's predictably miserable. Up ahead, across the sea, they have no idea what to expect. This is completely uncharted territory, a new land, new ruler. Like, we look at these Israelites and we're like, these, these guys were dim-witted. 
like for one to go back to Egypt. I'm convinced we do this all the time in our own lives. We choose predictable misery over moving out into the unknown out of fear. We are, we are fearful people. We are risk-averse people. I felt it myself. I've been in a situation in my life where I saw two options in front of me. One I felt like God was calling me to. It was new and scary. The other one was an old, safe option. It wasn't great, but it was predictably not great. I was comfortably not great. I am convinced in our lives we choose predictable misery out of fear all the time. We look at a situation in our life, we realize it's not a good situation, we realize it's a bad situation. Maybe we even sense that God is calling us to something new, but we are terrified. We are terrified at moving out into the unknown. See, the, the Israelites, they got this fire of pillars, uh, fire of pillar at night, cloud in the day, which sounds great, right? But guess what? Pillars of clouds just keep moving. They don't stay in one place. And you have no idea where that cloud is going. Back in, back in Egypt, life is miserable, but it's stationary. Right? Pyramids aren't going anywhere. Life is miserable, but it's predictably miserable. And maybe we think, well, God, if you're calling me to cross over, at least tell me what I can expect on the other side. But Yahweh doesn't do that with the Israelites, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't lay out the itinerary. He doesn't tell them everything that's going to happen. And we don't get an itinerary either, which is why it takes faith. It takes trust. It takes courage to follow God into unknown territory. We are afraid of the unknown. But the God, God is calling the Israelites, and he's calling us to move beyond fear. After the Israelites cross the Red Sea, we read this. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses and his servant. I want you to notice something. Okay, the Israelites, they get to the other side. Guess what? They're afraid. Okay? Before the Israelites cross the Red Sea, uh, army coming at them, sea on one side, they're afraid. Moses tells them, don't be afraid. Okay? But they get to the other side. They've crossed. Guess what? They're afraid. Two kinds of fear. One is the right kind of fear. One is the wrong kind of fear. Okay? Two kinds of fear. One on one side of the Red Sea, one on the other. One is the wrong kind. One is the right kind. There's been two displays of power in our story. We've seen the power of Pharaoh. It's, it's impressive, right? It may not be impressive to us, but you know, picture yourself back then. Where it's an impressive display of power. Chariots and armies and troops and horses. Like it's completely understandable why it strikes fear in the Israelites. But then there's the power of God. Okay? There's the power of the one who, who actually can divide the waters. And there's no comparison between the two. The power of Pharaoh is absolutely dwarfed by the power of God who crushes Pharaoh. Jesus' defeat of Satan and evil and death and sin through his death and resurrection was a spectacular victory. The dark forces that came at Jesus during his life and his death were powerful. They were nothing compared to Jesus' power. How do we move from the wrong kind of fear to the right kind of fear? I think we do it by, by looking at, by beholding the mighty hand of the Lord that crushed Satan and evil and death through Jesus' death and re resurrection. And we allow that to move us to awe, to move us to even fear. We are, as I said, we are, we're a fearful people. We live in a fearful culture. We immerse ourselves in news cycles that are propped up, that make money just 
getting us to fear more and more and more. People make money off our fears. And it's all the wrong kind of fears. I think part of the reason why we're so fearful is because we have such a small view of God. Okay, when you domesticate God, when you reduce God to your buddy who wants to slap you on the back and is just a nice guy, you might not fear that God, but all the other fears around you, those are going to make you terrified. We have a God, and we see this so clearly last week, we have a God who so loves us and is so tender with us. Absolutely. Okay, we cannot lose that. Okay, I'm not trying to say fear God, and that means God doesn't love you. That's, that's a false dichotomy. Okay, it's a paradox. God absolutely loves us. God absolutely draws close to us. God is so tender in the Bible. And God is so powerful that you should be in awe, even fear. We need both those sides of God because that one of God and power is going to make all these other fears just get dwarfed. Just like a way of salvation has been opened up for the Israelites to cross over the Dead Sea, a way of salvation has been opened up for you and for me. Okay, we're trapped. We're hemmed in. There's no way out. But a new Moses, a greater Moses, has come. And through his death and resurrection and the defeat of the enemy, he has opened a way for us, a path to cross over from death to 